Good evening and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kafer, Sunday columnist with the Denver Post. We're joined today by Patricia Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, David Kopel, law professor and research director at the Independence Institute, Elena Alvarez, reporter with Axios, and Penfield Tate, former state house representative, former state senator, and founder of Tate Law. Paul Pazin is leaving as Denver Police Chief after 28 years with the Denver Police Department. He will be retiring mid-October and has been at the helm since 2018. What is his legacy and what should Division Chief Ron Thomas, his likely successor, do when he first takes the wheel? What is Thomas's first priority and what is the legacy of the man departing? Patricia. Well, I think we can see what Thomas's first moves are going to be because he is basically in charge now. It sounds like Paul Pazin is just taking a lot of time off that he's already earned before he officially leaves October 15th. From what we understand, one of the things Thomas has been very, very good at, and, and he's been with the department for a long time too, is he is a listener. He's been going to a lot of the community forums. And so, so far, he his... Um, his ascendance to that chief, he still would have to be approved by city council, but it has definitely been lauded as a good move. He is definitely a man of little words. He had a press conference yesterday with Hancock where he said very little, but that he wants to listen. He wants to make sure where the city's going. Paul Payson's retirement and resignation came pretty fast. I mean, as far as we can tell, it came as a surprise to a lot of people, perhaps even the mayor. He said on Tuesday, that's when he found out. Um, he has had a thankless job. Let's face it, anyone in, in policing has a thankless job right now, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job, and we've, we've seen both. He came in uh, right as Denver had adopted body cams, which are great, except that we saw in July the body camera footage of the police officers who shot the six innocent bystanders at let out in Lodo is a problem that it's almost insurmountable to make a comeback from that. And that was in the wake of all the George Floyd protests where we found certain things like the Denver Police Department didn't couldn't really communicate with the people they brought in from other cities to deal with protesters. And so there were a lot of things that violated Denver code that the Denver police let happen. He had a really rough time. So you can't exactly blame him for leaving. I don't think he was pushed by Hancock because Hancock's about to leave. Although he says he'll make this city great in the next 300 days when he's had 11 years already to do it. So Dave, it's been a couple of tough years as, as Patty alluded to. Um, what should Thomas's first priority be? Well, I think, as Patty said, he's, continue, he's known to be a good listener and, and continuing to do that. Uh, but I, I hope he, if he ever has the occasion, uh, follows two of Pazin's important legacies. First of all, the reason that when there were the George Floyd peaceful protests, but there were a lot of rioters and criminals in that crowd, in other cities, Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, a few months later, New York City, Minneapolis, lots of other places, significant areas were burned to the ground, small businesses destroyed and, and put out of business uh, forever. And it was definitely mistakes were made in that chaotic situation. But Chief Pazin and the Denver Police Department didn't give the rioters the freedom to destroy as uh, uh, some police chiefs and mayors in, in other cities did. And secondly, I'm glad, it's interesting that his 
uh, retirement comes not long after he spoke out against hate when South High School made every student attend this video which maliciously falsely claimed that Denver police officers are trained to be prejudiced against black people, against Muslims, against gay people. That kind of vilification is why a lot of people are getting out of law enforcement and why more people are not going in in the first place. And the biggest victims of that are going to be the people who are most vulnerable to crime, which is to say poor people, including minorities. You know, uh, Dave has uh, highlighted some of the legacy that the the departing chief has, but one of that part of that legacy is the STAR program, um, allowing other people to go in to handle difficult situations, uh, minor criminal offenses, and give the support to people. And that's actually lowered crime. Um, Elena, how can uh, how do you see this going forward, and what other parts of his legacy do you think we should highlight? Absolutely. That was a huge part of Chief Pazin's legacy is pushing some progressive policies that have been popular with the city, including the STAR program, which has taken off. Uh, it's gotten national accolades um, for its uh, you know, effectiveness. Um, I think his focus on data-driven uh, strategies is also uh, something that's been really attractive to the city um, as far as, you know, uh, ways that we should approach a huge crime program, or a crime problem, I should say, sorry. Uh, and that, going back to, you know, what, um, what the new chief's first priority should be, I mean, that's, crime is about to hit. Violent crime, our Denver's homicide rate is about to hit an all-time high. Violent crime has been on the rise since 2020, and that's, this is a part of you know, what has made Pazin's job so difficult in the last two years. So when we're talking about you know, Pazin's legacy, not only is that a part of it and needs to be changed, we also have two really big uh, public uh, PR problems as far as the DPD goes. And that's you know, earlier this year, the federal uh, grand jury decision that charged the city $14 million for DPD's response to uh, uh, George Floyd protests. And then we also have, as we've talked about plenty around this table, the uh, uh, recent shooting in July, where several of his officers are now under a grand jury investigation um, for injuring six, six people in a, in a shooting in a busy place. Um, so I think, you know, um, there's, there's lots of good progress that Pazin has pushed, um, but I think it's also worth taking a really uh, a zoomed out sort of view at, of what's happened here, because Pazin's resignation is the 10th, uh, he's the 10th police chief in Metro Denver to have resigned since August 2021. And we have cops around the country uh, quitting because at the end of the day, between rising crime, nationwide uh, staff shortages, and this heightened scrutiny over police's use of force in the wake of George Floyd protests, it's really, really tough to be a cop right now. Um, and as Patty said, this is a really thankless job. And at this point, I mean, so many officers are just saying it's, it's just not worth it anymore. Penn, Elena is correct. This is a tough, tough time to be a police officer and a tough time to, to step into that chief role. If you could give Thomas a bit of advice, what would you tell him? You know, um, I, and I may have an opportunity. Ron was, uh, when he was a patrol officer, he was my next door neighbor in Park Hill. So I've known him uh, since he first joined the, start, the force. And I, I think he's got a good background. I mean, there's a local kid, went to TJ High School. So he, this city's been his home for years. I would tell him uh, to continue listening, um, to pick up on the successes of a Pazin like the STAR program, where 
modeled after police departments around the country that have, have decided that not every call requires the response with a pistol and a taser, that there are some other resources you can bring to the table to tamp down a situation and actually provide some healing to a community. Um, Iran is going to have to listen to folks, and he's got some credibility there, but he's got to repair the relationship. I mean, Elena outlined um, just two of the numerous money judgments the city has paid over the last several years because of excessive force. And there is a tension in our community, like many other big cities, where large numbers of people in the community just don't trust the police, referencing David's um, talking about the video at South High School. So Ron has got to do some repair work, but he's, I think, in an ideal position with the background to sort of help bridging that gap so that you create more trust, not just between the community and the police, but it's a two-way street. You need the police to trust the community also, because I think there is some distrust coming from the officers as well. The Senate race uh, between Bennett and O'Day is uh, really uh, heating up right now. In fact, we've actually seen just a couple of months out that a poll is showing that the senator, Senator Michael Bennett, and also his, his opponent are actually neck and neck. Another poll puts Bennett ahead by 11 points, with 12 percent of voters still undecided. Which candidate has the best strategy in this race, which is still very much in play, Dave Kopel? Well, I think they, they both have the best strategy for the respective situations they're in. And I, I caution viewers, because the people who watch this kind of show are the kind who are very interested in politics, and so when there's a new poll, they're the most likely to be to want to read about it and, and think about it. But we've, we've known over the past 20 years, polling has just gotten worse and worse, and it had its problems even, even before that. And even you know the poll two weeks two days before the elections are are often wrong um, and we see candidates substantially changing so for example in 2016 Michael Bennett in the polls had a very large lead over Daryl Glenn who was a hard-working but underfunded and not very strong candidate and yet Bennett only won that race by a few points so think about the issues folks but don't don't spend too much time on the polls what i think we can say is bennett and o'day is going is a is a close race and both both sides are right to take it seriously um, oh, o'day for colorado's current political climate is positioning himself well because even though he is the Republican nominee, he's not a doctrinaire Republican. So, for example, he said he would uh, support something to codify abortion rights nationally, um, which I, I think is a probably a popular position in, for the Colorado electorate as a whole, but you know, certainly not among the majority of the Colorado Republican Party. Um, but I, I think the key thing is we've, we are a ways away. Mail-in balloting doesn't begin till about the second week of October, so there's still plenty of, t plenty of things um, in play. So Phil Weiser and his opponent, John Kellner, are also running neck and neck. In fact, they both are getting 44% in a poll that I just looked at. Dave is right to suggest that polling is not an exact science, but are we seeing some shifts in the Colorado electorate? Elena. I think we absolutely are seeing some shifts. You know, uh, there's a, a new poll. Again, I don't know how much merit we want to give to these polls, but um, it, it basically shows that there's a lot more nuance in these arguments, I think, that Colorado voters are really looking to see. Um, our country has been so polarized for 
far too many years, and I think people are really coming to a point where they want to hear, instead of just your talking points, actual common sense that relate to their lives and they can, can I mean, reason with, you know? Um, and it's hard to do that when people are so far on the left and the right. Um, I think it's really interesting uh, the the stance that O'Day has taken with abortion and, and the role that abortion has taken in general with both Bennett and O'Day's campaigns. Um, O'Day now is taking a sort of middle-of-the-road approach as far as it goes with Republicans saying that, you know, there is room for um, abortions to happen when it comes to medical emergencies, rape, things like that. And that's something that more middle-of-the-road voters are looking to hear that kind of nuance. And so um, I think, you know, it, it's really reflective of the times right now. I think we're, we're smart and we're fed up as voters. Uh, and so just really looking for more compromises and just like reasonability. <laughs> you know, growing up, the state was sort of a reddish purple state. Now it is basically a blue state. Penn, um, do you see that there might be a shift in the electorate or are these polls perhaps uh, a false positive? I don't think there's a shift in the electorate. I think the biggest problem with all of these polls is what they don't ever disclose is the percentage of people who just aren't paying attention. Um, when they get the call or they get the text and they ask, what candidate do you prefer? And probably 40% of them say, I, I haven't heard of either of them. I don't know any, anybody. So that that's part of the problem. Um, I, it, when the in the Senate race, I think O'Day has done a good job in positioning himself as what I would call a traditional Colorado Republican, as opposed to some of these election deniers like Boebert and others. Um, and I gotta give him kudos. I th thought the commercial his wife did was spot on, and I think it struck the right tone. His issue is going to be he can't cite anything Bennett has really done wrong or is really out of step with Coloradans. And so I think it's it's still an uphill pull for him. But at least in Colorado, being positioned as a moderate, uh, moderately conservative, traditional Colorado Republican helps him as opposed to some of the folks who have run for the office in the past. You know, Penn is right. He, uh, a lot of people are not uh, paying attention. It's still the summer, and so probably in the next couple of weeks, people are going to start paying attention. If you could give uh, some advice to either candidate about how to get to those undecided voters, what would you do, Patty? Well, they're going to be doing it anyway. They're going to be buying TV time, although TV time is way down the buys from the Senate candidate, Senate candidacy in 2020. You know, it's interesting. People here may not be paying attention, but nationally, you have a lot of CNN, Washington Post, people paying attention to this Senate race. It could be because it's just lovely in Colorado at this time of year, and they have, want to come out here. They've got an excuse. But it's also interesting because you do have someone like Joe O'Day who is not... Ron Hanks, a, an election denier, a no abortion ever, th that the Republicans did wind up with a candidate who's got a much better chance than Ron Hanks would have. And the problem is people don't really know Joe O'Day right now. And the question is, when they get to know him, will they still want to support him? But they're going to be taking a look. And of course, Michael Bennett is not exactly someone who says, look at me, look at me. And people, he's going to have to start saying that over the next two months. Banana Republic is leaving downtown Denver Pavilions Mall later this month. Bad sign? The Denver City Council just awarded Downtown Denver Partnership a $2.4 million contract to breathe new life into downtown Denver post-COVID. Will shoppers and diners return? Elena. 
Uh, that's a time will tell. It's a really good question. Um, to me, this really boils, boils down to a, a giant PR campaign, and I think there's room to argue whether PR campaigns work. Uh, and you know, 2.4 million dollars—it's it's not that much when you come when it comes down to breathing new life into a whole downtown. Um, so just for context, the city is planning to use these funds to do a few things, which includes um, spurring pop-up shops downtown, giving them free uh, business owners free space to. Uh, launch their businesses downtown, um, launching a national marketing campaign to attract top tenants uh, from around the country to set up shop downtown in 16th Street Mall. Um, they're also looking to host more events like live music and art uh, events and, and also combat crime, which is it's, it's a big part of why uh, 16th Street Mall and the downtown area is um, doing so badly. So they're, they're trying to invest in new security cameras, more street lighting. Um, I think the big picture here is that, uh, well, number one, we've said time will tell if this is going to work, um, but they have a really big problem that I don't know that this will fix at all, which is that we have a new reality thanks to the pandemic, which is workers are not in downtown buildings anymore. They're working from home. And I learned this week, reporting on this story, that city leaders now say they don't think that um, daytime traffic may ever return beyond 80% uh, pre-pandemic levels because people are home. So this really uh, presents a really interesting problem for the next mayor particularly to figure out how you, I don't think $2.4 million is going to change this whole phenomenon that's happening across the country. So it's really figuring out how you're going to revamp these empty downtown businesses um, and rethink a space like this in the wake of a global pandemic. Um, so. We'll see what happens, but I'm I'm skeptical. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little skeptical too. You know, 5280 did a piece that just came out flagging some of these issues, and traffic was one of them. People just don't want to drive downtown. What other kinds of things are you seeing that might prevent downtown from recovering fully? You know, and this is uh, this is a bad sign with Banana Republic leaving, and it's sad for me. I I did the original financing on the Pavilions Mall um, with Dura very many years ago, and. The biggest problem with this contract with, for the Downtown Denver Partnership is nobody's really analyzed what the problem is. Elena's hit on a lot of it. Um, since the, the pandemic, uh, you've got a lot of businesses that are going to remain in a hybrid situation where they're going to allow a number of their workers to work remotely for the long term. So you're not going to have the same volume of people working downtown. Crime has been a problem. I mean, when you have police officers shooting into a crowd and wounding six people to get one suspect, who wants to hang out downtown? You may walk around and get shot by accident. Uh, and, and so that's a deterrent. We've got a huge homeless problem on the 16th Street Mall. It's unsightly. Then you've got RTD in the city talking about construction and redoing the mall. That's going to keep people away from downtown. So you've got all of these things coming together, and it seems like this $2.4 million, frankly, is a huge waste of time and money right now until you really take a look at what the problem is and come up with a comprehensive plan to fix it. No one had an idea how to stop the decline of downtown as it was occurring, and 2.4 million thrown out there just for the sake of a PR campaign is not gonna fix anything. What's interesting is that the suburbs have become a lot more competitive over recent years, developing their own arts facilities, having some really high-quality restaurants, or even historic uh, city streets. How does Denver become competitive in a much more competitive market, Patty? Well, Penn brought it up in some ways because people don't want to drive. I mean, that's one of the issues. So you have these suburb, suburban areas which are attracting people who can't afford homes in Denver, but maybe can afford one 
in Littleton and Englewood in Arvada, and you've got huge empire building with arts organizations there, which is great for those communities. And you've got independent restaurateurs who can't afford another location here in Denver, so they might do one in the suburbs, which is great. Let's share, let's share the wealth. The biggest problem downtown, in one way, is, as Elena points out, if you don't have 60 per, well, probably 40% of the people who used to be downtown working there, you can't, you can't feed them at lunch. Restaurants can't make it through lunch. Shops like Banana Republic, no one's going to go get their T-shirt or whatever. I mean, if Victoria's Secret couldn't make it there, no one's going to make it there. <laughs> um, so basically, downtown has to shift. If you're not going to have the daytime workers, you've got to emphasize nighttime entertainment. And then you have to entertain, uh, push the convention business. You've got to push the travelers. You've got to push great food. You have to push entertainment. So that $2.4 they should pay to have local bands play one night a week in bars up and down the mall to get Denverites, give them a reason to come back downtown. So one of the last times I was downtown, I got to see a guy with no pants on. I think that urban camping and crime really are a significant deterrent to family-friendly entertainment. David Copel, what well, do you think? Well, Krista, just for a correction, the Independence Institute's office is in Uptown, which is near downtown, so I'm sorry that happened with John Caldera, <laughs> but that that's not, you know, that, that you, you can't call that a downtown problem. Um, National marketing all sounds swell when it's you're the marketers selling it to the, the city, which leaves the tax money. Remember, upstate New York had a huge thing, and they've, they even had ads on, during the Super Bowl uh, about, like, come to upstate New York for the, the great business climate, but it's not. New York's a catastrophically overregulated state with dying upstate cities, and all the national advertising isn't going to solve that. We have a mayor who for over a decade has been working to cause traffic jams. Traffic calming, they call it, like so you can sit idling for a long time. And, and, and people don't want to go through that, this problem the mayor has deliberately created. The people who do work from home, you know, maybe they have to come into the office one day a week, but they could come in two or three if they want and they say, oh, we'll go to a ball game or then have dinner afterwards. But a lot of them are choosing not to because this, the, the city, and downtown in particular are overrun by gangs and dangerous vagrants. And that Mayor Hancock inherited a safe city in 2011, and we've got the opposite today. Now for our favorite part, which is disgrace of the week. Patty, who are you going to give it to? I'm so happy to return to Douglas County, which has provided so many disgraces, but this one tops it. Douglas County is thinking of not allowing a pride event back at the fairgrounds because of a wardrobe malfunction that involved not a real nipple, but a <laughs> fake nipple showing on, a, you know, like a drag queen costume. Really, I think we can handle that. I would hope so. Dave? <laughs> uh, why do people keep picking on Caldera every single <laughs> item? Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip the disgrace and go for one, two nice things, starting with last week. Uh, a week ago was the 50th and was Women's Equality Day. And so the Pat Schroeder staff uh, had a reunion of the 50th anniversary of when Denver's great congresswoman uh, was ele first elected in 1972. And Pat was a great example of, of being herself and also of hiring young staff and, uh, and trusting them. Elena, your disgrace of the week. Yeah, I'll go with the national pick. Starbucks started offering pumpkin spice <laughs> lattes on August 30th, almost a whole month before fall. And I just think that's disgraceful. I'm not. I'm not about the pumpkin craze. Yeah. Well, then they're going to ruin Christmas by starting <laughs> yeah. shortly thereafter. Exactly. Pen. Just to follow up on an issue we had earlier, May DNF, Macy's, Denver Dry, 
Fashion Bar, Joslin's, Cottrell's, and now Banana Republic. We used to have a thriving downtown where you could actually go there and shop and do something. And for the city to waste money on a PR campaign when they haven't analyzed the real problem with downtown is, is a disgrace. Well said. And now for something nice, Patty. As someone who hasn't missed a day downtown since the pandemic started, get out there this weekend. Go to Taste of Colorado in Civic Center Park. Go to the Chalk Art Festival, which is in the Golden Triangle this year, and see that it's actually a lovely part of town. Get out there and see real people and celebrate the workers over Labor Day. Dave. My mother, Dolores Copel, who passed away two weeks ago at age 91 at, at home with her family, she graduated from DU Law School at the top of her class in 1954, and the reason she went to DU was because CU made it pretty clear they didn't think women should be lawyers, and nor did a lot of other people. And she did, and later she, my, my dad uh, switched from journalism to law so he could practice law with her. And at Copel and Copel, she became one of the, the top bankruptcy lawyers in the United States, a civic leader in many other ways, and she was also a great example of how a person can live his or her own life the way they want to rather than trying to conform to other people's expectations. What an amazing woman. I'm sorry Thank for you. your loss. Thank you. Elena. I'm sorry too, David. Um, I went to my first Colorado State Fair in Pueblo last weekend and had a total blast despite eating way too much fried food. So I'd encourage everyone, if you're not downtown, to uh, head out to Pueblo while it's open through Labor Day weekend. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Pen. Dave, my condolences Thank also. But, and I've talked about this earlier, how it's nice to see post-COVID we're getting outside again. Uh, Elena's right. Go, the State Fair is a lot of fun. My daughter used to love it when she was a kid. But the taste of Colorado, I mean, this is an excuse just to hang out in the sunshine, drink beer, and eat turkey legs. <laughs> um, but do enjoy it. Go see the Chalk Art Festival. Just experience downtown in a very positive and supportive environment. We do live in a beautiful state and a beautiful city. That's all the time we have now for our, for our show. Um, I'd like to thank all of our guests, Patricia Calhoun, David Copel, Elena Alvarez, and Penfield Tate. If you've got questions or you've got comments for our show, please do tune in and let us know. Follow us on Twitter. You can also follow us on our YouTube channel. Um, we are here for you. This is a fantastic PBS a station, a fantastic PBS show that really touches on issues in a way that no other other program out there does so. Um, if you tune in anywhere else, people are talking over each other, insulting each other, getting in silly lines. But here at PBS, we really care that people are able to hear a diverse set of viewpoints in a way that is calm, is respectful, not only respectful to each other, but also respectful to the audience. And with that, I want to say thank you again to our guests, and thank you to everyone that helps put on this, in, this, uh, this fantastic program. And most of all, I want to thank the audience for tuning in uh, every Friday night to hear Colorado Inside Out.